if there was ever a time when we need to be anchored to the rock of Jesus Christ, it is now. Are we going to stand up and say something? No matter what political party you're in. Are you going to speak against this to the people in your sphere that you have influence with? In love. Speak the truth. In love. Lord, as we open up your word now and we think about the fact that our nation and many people around us are no longer anchored to your word. If there was ever a time for us to rededicate our commitment to being people of the book, it is now. People of the words of Jesus, but not just knowing them in our mind, but may your words penetrate into the deepest recesses of our heart in such a way that it is the most natural thing that our lives would be lived by the obedience of the word that is inside our heart. God, may we be people of the word. Encourage us today, Holy Spirit. Encourage us to know you better. Speak through your word now, in Jesus' name. KFC family on Wednesday, uh, if you're in my teaching group, uh, I mentioned something, just kind of briefly in passing, um, that the word Christian is a word that I haven't been using as often as I used to. I don't think the word Christian is a bad word, uh, so don't mishear me. But I think the word Christian has taken on maybe a meaning that I'm not sure is one I agree with. Again, I don't think it's wrong to call people Christians. I don't think it's wrong for us to be called Christians. I think I am a Christian, so don't hear me wrong. But the term Christian has, has gotten connected with a lot of different stuff, and a lot of that is political and whatever. Could I suggest a different word for who we are? Now, I'm talking about identity. We are identified. What, what word is going to be used to identify who we are? You know, this, who we are, it was not always Christian. I mean, Christian came a little later in the book of Acts. You can see it was at Antioch that they were first called Christians. We used to be called people of the way. <laughs> That's one way of saying it. Uh, we used to be identified with the fish symbol because Jesus broke you know, he, the fish miracles that he did uh, as a way of identifying who we are. But I think the best definition of, of who we are and what our identity actually is, I think it could be two different things. One of them is simply the word disciple of Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus. Now, even the word disciple is a little bit churchy. Um, you have to define what that word disciple means. And I've been doing that as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. The word disciple means follower. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I've said that to you a number of times before, but I think it's worth saying. We are, we are like our identity, like the identifying word for us, followers of Jesus. 
Right? What, what are we anchored to? What's the rock? The words of Jesus put into practice. That's what followers of Jesus do. That's who followers of Jesus are. And another way of saying it, maybe slightly different, but I still think it has equal power, um, and maybe a power that is more than what the word Christian is right now in our culture. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We are people who live with the recognition that this world is not our own. We are not primarily citizens of the United States of America. We are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God. And what makes a citizen of the kingdom of God? Whom you recognize as king is how you can tell who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. Do you live in such a way that Jesus Christ is your king? Or do you live in such a way that something else or someone else is your king? Oftentimes people live as if they themselves are their own king and Jesus is just their savior. Jesus cannot be only savior. It's a package deal. Jesus must be savior and king, not just savior. That's what he requires. And that's what it must be, because to be citizens of God's kingdom means you recognize who your king is. Now, the Sermon on the Mount that we've been talking about, this, this rock, this anchor that we have, the words that Jesus put into practice, as we've been learning about what Jesus is saying, we must recognize that the Sermon on the Mount is the practical teaching for how to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is the practical teaching for what it literally looks like for someone to be a citizen of God's kingdom. That's what we are studying. That's what it means to have your life built on the rock. So as we talk about who we are, that's a better way of saying it. What religion are you? Well, I'm, I'm not part of a religion. But I will say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What church are you a part of? Well, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. I meet together with other believers at New Life Church of God. Do you see that? That's different. That's who we are. Now, as we've looked at Matthew chapter 5, we've been spending, we spent three weeks talking about the antithesis. I'm going to briefly go through what we've talked about because it connects with the next part of Jesus' message to us. So, you remember the antithesis? You have heard it said, but I say to you, as Jesus explained what it means that he fulfilled the law. So what does the law look like in the lives of disciples of Jesus Christ now? Because what Jesus said is, the Jewish people have missed it. They've missed what God originally intended in the law. And he talked about six things. Do you remember? He talked about, number one, murder. This was a number of weeks ago, before Christmas. Citizens of God's kingdom value human life. We understand the fact that humans have eternal destiny. And because we understand this, it changes the way we act toward others, and even the way we think about others. Citizens of God's kingdom 
would never become murderously angry with another human being. And we would never say to someone, go to hell. Because we recognize the eternity of that statement. We just wouldn't have that in our heart. Followers of Jesus, citizens of God's kingdom, just don't have that in their heart. Number two. The second example that Jesus uses about him fulfilling the law is adultery. Voluntary sexual activity with someone other than your spouse. <laughs> Jesus fulfilled this law by teaching us that even looking lustfully at another is adultery. You see, citizens of God's kingdom recognize the unique danger of sexual sin, both thought and deed, and are active in their defense against it. Citizens of God's kingdom just know that what you're thinking inside matters. It matters. Number three, divorce. Citizens of God's kingdom recognize that divorce causes severe relational distress. And that every and all options are to be explored before divorce. It is the last resort, not the first. Relationship matters. Covenant matters. It matters to God. And it matters to citizens of God's kingdom. Divorce will be the absolute last resort and only because of marital unfaithfulness. Number four, oaths. Citizens of God's kingdom speak the truth. Without the need for oaths, our handshake should be known as trustworthy. The handshake is enough. We don't need to, to make oaths for people to believe us. That's just who we are. You see, these are identity questions. It's who, we're, who we are on the inside. Number five, eye for eye. Citizens of God's kingdom view other people from God's perspective. This is what we talked about just last week. We don't seek personal revenge. Instead, we desire to help people understand who God is. No matter what happens, no matter what someone does, it is our perspective that is in the heavens gaining God's perspective on what has happened. So we don't seek personal revenge. We don't seek the protection of our own rights because we see the eternal perspective on what's happening. Again, that doesn't mean we don't value justice. We absolutely do value justice. But we recognize that justice is God's, not ours. Number six, love for enemies. Citizens of God's kingdom are motivated by an inner desire to help people get right with God. You see, again, it's this, this eternal perspective from God that we can recognize that even our enemies have the image of God inside them. And of all of the people that we have the chance to influence, when we love people from an eternal perspective, even our enemies, when we love them from an eternal perspective, we truly show that we are followers of Jesus Christ, citizens of God's kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. And then what Jesus says at the end, seek perfection. 
Citizens of God's kingdom strive to live their lives for God. Now, all of that can be summed up, I think, and really much of the Sermon on the Mount, much of what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ can be summed up. If you put all of that together, I might suggest to you that it can be summed up in two words. There's more than these two words. But I think that this gets a very important point across that Jesus is trying to make to us, his disciples. Are you ready for this? Two words. Motivation matters. Motivation matters. In fact, I think you can make an argument from those six things I just said. Motivation matters more than the action itself. Now that's, you could argue with me about that. But I need you to understand from Jesus' perspective, as we simply read out of, of God's word what Jesus is saying to us disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. What is in your heart matters a huge amount. I think you can even argue more than the action itself. I want us today to keep in the front of our minds Jesus' concern for inner motivation as we read the next section. Now I'm going to read a, a kind of a long portion of Scripture today. And oftentimes this portion of Scripture I read is preached on in three different sections. But I think that that steals what Jesus is, the, the bigger point Jesus is trying to make. Okay? So, I want you to recognize as I read this that Jesus is purposely focusing on one big idea that is related to the six things I just talked about. It's connected. This Sermon on the Mount, this life of discipleship, it connects together. And inner, inner motivation is like the connector. So I want you to, to hear that as we read. So if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Well, that's a long passage of Scripture. And like I already said, most sermons preached about this section of Scripture are done so in three separate sermons. Right? Did you catch the three separate things? Number one, giving. Number two, praying. Number three, fasting. So I'm hoping, or probably willing to guess, almost everybody in here has heard a specific sermon on those three topics. In fact, if you've been in our church long enough, you've heard them from me. Because I have preached specific sermons on these topics, even using this section of Scripture. So I'm not going to go back and re-teach in this sermon about giving, praying, and fasting. Instead, I want you to see the overall message that Jesus is trying to communicate in the Sermon on the Mount to disciples in this passage. Does that make sense? So this is not a sermon on giving, praying, or fasting. This is a sermon on seeing what Jesus was saying about the whole thing. Now, as we look at Jesus' entire Sermon on the Mount as, dis- as a disciple's life, as discipleship in action, another larger theme comes out that ties the three of these together. And this is what's missed when most, pe- when most pastors preach about this or when most people read this. They miss the thing that ties the three together. So they look just at the, each specific thing. Well, did you hear the theme when I was reading it? Maybe you did. But I'm willing to guess you didn't because you were thinking about those three things. Giving, praying, and fasting. Now I'm going to read the whole thing again. And this time when I read it, I want you to pay attention to the threads that Jesus has used to tie the three things together. Will you do that? So, again, it works better if you've got the Bible in front of you and are following in front of you. You can do it on the screen, but I do think it works better when it's in front of you. So if you'd like to pull it out, now will be the time. So I'm going to read it again. Pay attention to what connects the three things together. All right. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, 
for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, did you hear the theme that ties the three together? I want you to talk with the people next to you. And I want you to try to Try to uncover, did you hear the theme? So, I really, I want you to go, and if, if someone, you don't have to do this, but I would like it if people would talk together. What theme did you hear that ties together? Go ahead, just take a minute or two. Okay? The word reward 
giving, praying, and fasting. Put those three in a category for me. What are those three things? Go ahead. What's the category? Worship. Worship. Or if you want to use another word, it's religious activities. Now here's something we don't like to do. You ready for this? We don't like to put together religious activities with reward. Because somehow we think that's wrong. We're not here to get a reward, are we? Apparently, Jesus would disagree with you. What are we doing here on Sunday morning? Why are you here today? Jesus would say, but somehow the concept of reward is involved. Uh-oh. Where are we going with this? I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm trying to see the words of Jesus come out to me. I'm not trying to look into it with what I think worship is. Did you get that? So what are we seeing from Jesus? Well, you see this? The green is everything Jesus said in this passage about reward. Here we go. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Chapter 6, verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And again, the next verse, verse 3. Are you catching this? It's in almost every verse. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your, your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Why do we worship? And according to... Now, all three verses that talk about giving to the poor, about giving in general, all three of them include the concept of you're doing it for a reward. Let's go on. Um, in verse, yeah, four. Uh, well, that was four. So three out of the four in the first. And then in the next one about prayer, verse five. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Verse six. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who's unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. That heard because of their many words? That's a reward that the pagans are expecting by babbling. They think that God will hear them. Go down to verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Go to verse 18. <laughs> so it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, this is a tricky thing now, because we're not used to looking at Scripture this way. We've kind of got it set in our brain what worship is. According to Jesus... According to the Sermon on the Mount, according to the very words of our Savior, whom we follow, 
Giving, praying, and fasting involve reward from God. That's a different way of thinking about this, isn't it? Because it seems selfish. Are you just here to get something? You know what Jesus would say? And this is the tricky thing. According to this, Jesus would say, yes. You are just here to get something. But do you want to know what Jesus would also say? It really, really, really matters what that thing is you are trying to get. Because if your motivation in worship is for others to see you, you're actually getting nothing from God. Oh, that's the point. Jesus is teaching us about giving prayer and fasting in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. But actually, the teachings about giving prayer and fasting are secondary to what Jesus is actually teaching. What he's actually teaching is the motivation of your heart when you worship really really matters. Now, think about what Jesus did in the previous section. He talked about six Old Testament laws, how he fulfilled those laws, and what it truly looks like for citizens of God's kingdom to follow those laws. And do you know what the answer is? The answer is, your inner motivation matters about how you follow the law. Now, did Jesus comment on every Old Testament law? No, he commented on six of them. You know why? Because he didn't need to comment on all of them. The six examples were enough to get the point across. And the point is, the inner motivation is what matters. In fact, not even actually following the laws is what's important. The motivation is important. And when you get the motivation right, you will fulfill the laws automatically. You see that? What's in your heart is what matters when it comes to obeying the laws of God. And now look, what's in your heart is what matters when performing religious acts. Do you see the message of Jesus is the same for both things. I want you to see the big picture of what Jesus is doing here. He's not commenting specifically, primarily, about how to follow those six laws, although he is doing that. But he's not commenting specifically and primarily for how to do religious acts, like giving prayer and fasting, although he is doing that. But he's doing something bigger over the top. And that bigger over the top thing is this. Citizens of God's kingdom, disciples of Jesus Christ, are right inside. And that displays in the way we interact with other people, and it displays in the way 
we practice religion. Outside conformity is what the Pharisees were looking for. Inner transformation is what Jesus said God is looking for. And when your inner heart is right, when it comes to acts of worship, the words of Jesus tell us, you ready for this? God will reward you. Now that's a whole different way of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Because we continually try to turn the Sermon on the Mount into just another list of legal rules to follow. It's not what it is. It's about us being different right here. You know, this is tricky. Because Christianity and the religious practice of giving and praying and fasting, it's not about... In fact, it's completely opposite from a performance. This is really tricky as a pastor. I'm up here literally giving a talk to you. And I have such a wonderful prayer. Remember I've said that to you before? Oh, Jason, you're such a good prayer. That goes just straight in the face of Matthew chapter 6. I am not a performer. You are not an audience. The moment you think you're an audience listening to a performance is the moment we are no longer following the Sermon on the Mount. Do you see that? Do you see it? Why are you here this morning? I challenge you to actually look at the motivation of your heart. Because that's what Jesus is telling us to do. And I challenge you, when the, word, the youth were up here singing, the youth team, the worship team, what were you thinking about? What were you thinking about when the songs were being played? Were you prepared for worship? Was your heart in the right place? Or were you thinking about the number of times the chorus was repeated? Or were you thinking about how you're going to stand like this? Now this is a tricky one. And it's super tricky for me because I'm in the front row. So I'm just going to share a little bit of behind-the-curtain stuff for me as a pastor. I have a hard time putting my hands up in worship because I think you're going to look at me. Our church, I think, this is a maybe not a great way of putting this and you're not going to like it, but I think it really describes it well. I think we're, we are worship constipated. <laughs> I think we are. I, and I think that there's this, this weirdness when we try to worship together that's been here for years. Like, that's not good. Like, are we so concerned about what other people are going to think? Now, by the way, I'm talking to myself. So let me, let me, let me do this. this way. Are you ready for this? Jason, are you so concerned with other people will think that even when you feel moved by the Spirit, you can't go like this? Yes, I am. I don't want to be. But it's super hard because I'm sick. 
sitting up here in the front. Like, I want to be in the back. You guys are so lucky in the back. I don't want that feeling, and yet there's like this, this worship constipation in our gatherings. Have you felt it? What, where does that come from? I know where it comes from. Right there. It comes from our inner motivation for what we're doing here anyways. What are we doing here? Are we going to... And this is super tough because I'm, I'm like literally paid to come up here and be like well-spoken. Maybe I should just come up and just be a terrible preacher. I don't know. Could I just like have terrible sentences and grammar? And... No. no. <laughs> so we expect you to whatever. But what about you? Like the inner motivation of our heart and worship for you guys sitting out here... You're not an audience. Please don't think of yourself as an audience. We can't do that because we're going against what it means to be a disciple. This spiritual constipation, this worship constipation that we have is really problematic. I don't, I'm part of the problem because I'm like, I don't want people to feel like, and then like, well, we have to all stand up. Like, that's a big deal. Like, and that was from a sermon from like 10 years ago when I preached on Revelation 4, right? And I said, you know, God is majestic and we should be standing in his presence. So now we have to stand up. And I've heard people say, I just can't stand that long, but I feel like I've got to sit. Just sit down. It's okay. I mean, what, what's wrong with us right now? We've we got to get over this whole thing about worship being this production. And if you think you're an audience member, you're, then you're part of the production. If you're sitting there and you're mad because of the kind of worship that we're doing, what is going on? <laughs> I mean, what is going on? If we've got to change something, let's change something. But you've got to talk about it. You've got to speak the truth in love to me and to Mike. Like, help us know how to create an environment where you can just be free to express your worship to God. Right? But don't just sit there. That's not okay. It's not okay for me either. And I, I feel like I, my arms are chained down when I'm worshiping. That's how I feel because I don't want this to be like a look at Pastor Jason. He's got his hands up. Oh, man, he's so spiritual. I don't want that. Right? I don't want any of that. Guys, I want to worship God in spirit and in truth. Simply with this idea that I'm looking for a reward from God. What reward are you looking for in worship? Because there's only two choices according to Jesus Christ. You're either looking for a reward from people or you're looking for a reward from God. That's the only choices according to the Sermon on the Mount, which is the text that tells us how we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Notice I said that part from the floor? Because I feel just as convicted as you do after reading Matthew 6. Our time is up. There's so much that Jesus has for us and it's freedom. It's freedom. Let's not stand with our hands chained. And let's not have everybody put your hands up. And let's not feel like you have to stand up the whole time. 
And then you're like, oh, I don't like this. Let's just be done with all of that and let's, let's seek our reward and worship from God. That's what Jesus has told us to do. Can we try that? Can we try that? I want to try that. Myself. This is good. All right, I'm going to pray to end our time together, but don't leave. Because the ushers are going to come up right now and we're going to hand out these reports, one per family. Please don't leave, okay, until everybody gets one. I will announce when everybody can leave so we don't have this crazy thing going on. So let's pray, and the ushers are going to hand these out. God, may we not be a worship-constipated church anymore. <laughs> I don't know if that's, you know, not honoring to say it that way to you, Lord. And I, I don't mean to be brash. I don't mean to say things that are dishonoring. But God, I really want us to, to seek your reward in our worship. That's what I want. May we be a church that seeks your reward in worship. And all God's people said, Amen. And amen means let it be done. Let's do it. Alright. One per family. If you, if you need an absentee ballot, uh, Andy, do you have the absentee ballots? So if you need an absentee ballot, make sure you ask one of them. They've all got some absentee ballots. One, one report per family.